Good morning, everybody. Something I've appreciated in October, November, is the fact that COVID has not really been center stage in our lives. So a lot of us have been able to make plans without taking COVID into consideration. And as a result, people had plans for Christmas. There were family celebrations planned, holidays, and so on and so forth. And then the Omicron storm broke at the end of November. At the time, we were down in Belito because Gail had a medical checkup to go to. And we were also saying goodbye to my brother and sister-in-law who are heading off to the UK. And the one morning we had, um, had breakfast in a, in, in a restaurant in Mschlange, which had a beautiful outlook over the sea. And I was busy watching all of the ships lining up to go into Durban Harbour. And I was amazed once again just by the size of those container ships. They are just absolutely massive. In fact, there was one which was approaching and it was on the other side of the lip of the horizon. You couldn't actually see the ship, but you could just see these towers of containers which were obvi obviously sitting on the deck. And it reminded me of what James talks about in his epistle, that those massive ships, that huge seen reality, can be controlled by an unseen reality, namely the rudder. It's the rudder that enables the, the captain to guide that ship across the high seas, through storms, around reefs. It's an unseen reality. Now, there, there is this unseen reality behind Christmas that has an even greater effect on what is seen. And while I was on holiday, I was reading through 1 Corinthians and I came to this place in chapter 15, verse 58, where Paul comes to a conclusion. And he says, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. And that really resonated with me because obviously the storm had broken. There was going to be a whole lot more uncertainty again. And I was, I was thinking, how can I be steadfast? How can I be immovable? How can I continue abounding, overflowing, if you like, in the work of the Lord? And I'm sure that all of us feel the same. And in that particular verse, Paul has just established the unseen reality on which he can make that conclusion. Let's be steadfast. Let's be immovable. So we're going to go back to that passage that he quotes from, which is in Isaiah 25, verse 6, and it goes through to chapter 26, verse 6. So I'm going to read it to you now. Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, that's, that's a symbol of richness, um, really tasty stuff, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain, God will swallow up the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. 
For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain and Moab will be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands and the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground to the dust. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace. I love this. Whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. So, the focus of this unseen reality that impacts everything that we see around us is a particular mountain and a particular day. A particular mountain and a particular day. Let's have a look, first of all, at the mountain. Today's passage starts off with the words, on this mountain. And from the context, we know um, from the previous chapter in verse 23 that he's talking about Mount Zion in Jerusalem. This is the mountain on which Jerusalem is built. It's the mountain on which the temple was situated and most significantly it's the mountain on which Jesus Christ was crucified and then raised from the dead. This is what Isaiah said about Mount Zion in chapter 2 verses 2 to 4. He said, it shall come to pass in the latter days, more on this later, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Not so much in height, but in importance and authority and significance. It shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So the latter days began when Jesus Christ was crucified on the mountain. And because of what happened there, the mountain has come to symbolize the things that draw people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to God. It's seen as the location from which the good news is spread out. Ultimately, once Christ has returned, he will be enthroned on that mountain and he will rule his new creation from it. So let's read on. What is God going to do on this mountain? Folks, he's going to prepare a feast for us and significantly a feast for himself. And our feast depends on his feast. Let me tell you what I mean about that. So in verse 6, if you look at it, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast. When Christ returns, 
This is an unseen reality that affects our life today. When he returns, there is going to be a humdinger of a feast. And the New Testament writers refer to it as the wedding feast of the Lamb. In the Old Testament, just as an aside, a lamb was sacrificed in a person's place to take his sins upon it. And that's why Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb that was sacrificed to take our sins. So there's going to be this wedding feast of the Lamb. And once we've been given our resurrection bodies, once our every inclination to sin is gone, and once we've been removed from the very presence of sin, because sin has been removed from all of creation, we will be married to Christ and we will celebrate with a feast. This is going to be the most amazing thing because I don't know about you, but I just love feasts. I love celebrations. I love parties. And one of the things I struggle with on this earth is that my hearing isn't as good as it used to be. You know, when there's a buzz of conversation, I can't, often can't hear what the person next to me is saying. But that's not going to happen when we get to the wedding feast of the Lamb because I'll have a resurrection body. I'll be able to hear perfectly. And we'll be outside of time. So there'll be no rush at all. If I want to go and sit with Don and just catch up with him for a couple of hundred years, I'll be able to do it at the wedding feast of the Lamb. While we're enjoying amazing food and celebration, other people will be coming up to us. We'll be able to, I'll be able to go and chat to the Apostle Paul maybe and find out what his life was like. And you know, the amazing thing about it is that I won't be inclined to sin anymore. There will be no temptation to sin in me. There'll be no temptation to sin in the people around me. There'll be no presence of sin. And so we're going to get on perfectly. Isn't this a wonderful thing to think about? Now, everything good that your heart hungers for on earth, it'll be celebrated and it will be satisfied at the wedding feast. That wedding feast represents, it sums up, if you like, the overflowing wonders and pleasures of heaven. Now, I know that there are a lot of grannies and grandpas at harvest who are just longing to be with their grandchildren, longing to give them a hug, but they're on the other side of the earth. There are parents at harvest who had plans for a family celebration over Christmas, and it's not going to happen. But you know, what you are tasting, what you are aching for, what you're longing for, it's just a mere taste of what is going to happen at the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's a mere shadow of that feast. So that hug that you won't get to have, or that missed Christmas celebration with your kids, that won't be the final word on the matter. Nicky Gumbel tells the story of going to interview a young man who'd spent most of his life in a hospital bed. He'd had operation after painful operation. And he said, how do you make sense of all this? How do, how do you comfort yourself? Um, how do you feel towards God, perhaps more importantly? And he said to Nikki, you know what? God has all of eternity to make it up to me. And that's what the wedding feast encapsulates for us. So there's a feast for us, but there's also a feast for God. And remember I said that our feast depends on God's feast. In verse 7, you'll see it on the screen, it says that He, God, will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. 
What's he talking about? Well, just think back to some of the movies that you've watched, some of the miniseries perhaps that you've seen on television. How was death symbolized in those films? Well, often a person is shown being zipped up in a body bag, their face, their body is covered, or there's somebody lying on a table in a morgue and there's a sheet over them and then their loved one comes to identify them and they take the sheet back and then they cover it over again. Or perhaps it's people standing around a grave, <clears throat> normally it's in the, in the rain and, and the widow is wearing a veil. That's what he's referring to here. The covering that covers all mankind. The veil. He's talking about death. Have a look at verse 8. It says that God will swallow up death forever. So folks, whilst we are swallowing rich food and wine, God is swallowing up death forever. Can you imagine? I mean, which would you prefer? God will swallow up death so that you can swallow up rich food and wine. But there's more, and there always is more in the Bible. Take a look. It says the Lord will wipe away every tear. Folks, I wouldn't want to live forever if I knew that there were still going to be tears. And of course, the source of tears is sin, isn't it? But remember, we're going to be removed from the presence of sin. God is going to wipe away every tear. And then have a look at what God does about the reproach of his people from all the earth. What's he talking about there? He's talking about sin. Proverbs 14, 34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So God is going to remove our reproach. He's going to remove sin. I wouldn't want to live in the presence of sin forever because it's sin that always messes things up for me and for my family and for my community and for the world. It's sin. I could think of nothing more terrible than living for eternity, but there still being presence, but, uh, the presence of sin, but there won't be. And look at who does the work. God wipes away the tears. God takes away the reproach. You know, God is the only one who could swallow up death. Don't think that you can swallow up death by being good. You'll never be able to stomach death. You won't. There's nothing that you can do in this lifetime that will make it possible for you to swallow up death so that you can live forever. Only God can do it. He swallowed it up through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on Mount Zion. So, so far we've seen that Isaiah expresses the focus of our unseen reality, that rudder that guides the ship as a particular mountain, a mountain on which there's a feast for us and a feast which is made possible when God swallowed up death. But he also expresses it as a particular day. So turn to verse 9. It begins, verse 9 begins, it will be said on that day. Well, what day? What day is he talking about? It's the day when Christ returns. The day when his salvation is made complete. The day when death is finally swallowed up by God. And the day when we get to start feasting. On that day, there will be a speech and a song. Where do I get this from? Well, verse 9 records it will be said on that day, and then there's a recording of what will be said. And then verse, chapter 26, verse 1 says that it will be sung in that day. In other words, there's going to be a song. So let's have a look at the speech and the song. First of all, the speech. It will be said on that day, Behold, 
This is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. Folks, if you're a Christian, you're going to have to learn how to wait. That word is repeated twice in the speech. And hope, in fact, is a major theme in the Bible, as we saw from uh, Craig's sermon last week. But hope is meaningless unless we're waiting for a promise to be fulfilled. And folks, let's face it, waiting is hard. Particularly in this age of instant gratification, we are a people who wants to be gratified now. And so we find waiting very difficult. And as we've already seen, we will be denied certain joys and pleasures in life. And incidentally, if you just look around, you'll see people who are being denied greater joys and pleasures than your own. But if we wait faithfully, and if we're full of trust, God will have the final word. He'll have the final say. He will make up for whatever we've lacked when Christ returns. This life is not all there is. The best is yet to be. Yes, our salvation has begun in that we're now in right relationship with God, but it'll only be complete when death is swallowed up and sin is no more and the feasting begins. Maybe you're asking yourself now, these things that I'm facing at the moment, they're really hard. And I'm not here to minimize them today because they are really hard. Some of the things that people are facing in Harvest today are immense. How are we going to make it? The reality is that we will, because when we look at the rest of the speech, it assures us that God will trample down everything that stands against us, so that eventually we'll make it to the feast. Just have a look. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. Okay, our unseen reality is on this mountain, but there's another mountain. And Moab will be trampled down in this place as straw is trampled down in a dunkel. He will be spread out, his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands and the high fortifications of his walls. That's the other mountain. We have our mountain and the mountain of the things that are uh, facing us. He will bring it down, lay it low and cast it to the ground, to the dust. What size are I talking about here? Well, Moab was this ancient, long-standing enemy of Israel. Moab actually came to become a symbol of everything that makes the people of God miserable. And in those days, bricks were made by taking um, livestock manure, adding straw to it and some soil, and then tramping it down. And in the final analysis, that's what God is going to do with everything that is standing against you. He's going to trample it down into the manure, into the soil, and he's going to turn it into bricks, make it into a means of building you up. Perseverance will complete its work on you so that you can be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's how James puts it in his letter. And I, I, I don't know about you. I just can't wait for that day, the day when I'm going to join that multitude in heaven, when we're all going to be declaring together, behold, this is our God, because we're going to see him as he is, because we shall be like him. That's what it says in, in, in 1 John. We shall see him because we will be like him. No more sin in us. Behold, this is our God. We've waited for him.
that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now, I don't know about you, but there's one thing saying these things. But as someone who loves music, I long to be able to sing them as well. And the cool thing, of course, is that when we get our resurrection bodies, we'll all be able to sing beautifully. We'll be able to sing in tune. And I'm telling you something, there is going to be the most amazing song on that day. Turn to 26 verse 1. It says there, in that day, this song will be sung. Now, there's some stuff we need to explain here. In ancient times, um, you would most likely belong to a kingdom. There would be a king over you. And your safety and your ability to thrive would depend on two things. First of all, your kingdom would need to be able to defend itself against enemy kingdoms, like the kingdom of Moab. And two, you would need to have a good legal system to protect you from abuse by other citizens. So protection from enemies in another nation, protection from people in your own nation. Now, all of these could be achieved, and they had to be achieved through fortified cities. Fortified cities provided safety in times of war, and they also provided a base, because normally there would be a garrison inside the city, from which the law could be established and enforced in the surrounding areas to make sure that there was peace, and that people got on well together, and that somebody wasn't just arbitrarily killing somebody else, or stealing something from them, or taking their land, or moving their boundary, boundary stones. It all hinged on having a strong city. And Jerusalem was a city just like that. In fact, it was perfectly suited for protection. Folks, if, I just wish you could see what Jerusalem is like. It's on a hill that's surrounded by very steep-sided valleys. And then there's also walls all the way around Jerusalem. The only line of attack, the only viable line of attack, is along a saddle connecting Mount Zion, the mountain, to a range of other hills. But that saddle was defended not only by the fact that there was a wall going over it, surrounding the city, but also that there were high towers from which defenders could just shoot arrows down on attackers. And for that reason, you know, many enemies that came to try and defeat Jerusalem, they, they just couldn't do it by a, a straight-out assault. They would besiege the city, but then Jerusalem had its own water supply. It had a specially protected water supply that no um, attacker could cut off and they had big stores of food inside. So in the song, Jerusalem is used to symbolize our salvation. We have a strong city, it says. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. Now, on the one hand, we have an amazing salvation. No matter what's going on in life, we have a place of refuge and safety. But on the other hand, all that stands against us will be like a mighty city, literally razored to the ground and trampled into dust. Look at verse 5. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height and the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dusts. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. 
This sounds like good news to me. On the one hand, we have the city of salvation where we can be. On the other hand, the city that symbolizes everything that opposes us is just raised to the ground. Look at verses 3 and 4. And this is where we're going to close. It says here that we'll be singing, You keep, addressing God, You keep in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Whenever Jesus encountered people on earth, one of the first things he said to them was, peace be with you. Because that's a commodity that we really need in times like these. We need peace if we're going to be steady and steadfast. You will keep in perfect peace he whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. And so we go back to that conclusion that Paul drew on the basis of this a passage in the Old Testament. Be steadfast. Whatever it is that you're facing at the moment, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Don't forget to do those things that will count for eternity. Knowing that in the Lord, our labor is not in vain. We have a mountain. We have a day to look forward to. And because of that, God will keep us in perfect peace if our mind is steadfast because we trust in Him. Shall we pray? Father, I pray for every person at Harvest who is facing difficulties and pleasure and celebrations and all sorts of good things being denied those things because of what's going on in the world and i pray that you would help us to remain steady help us to remain steadfast please keep us in perfect peace as we keep our mind fixed on you because we trust you and we ask all of these things in jesus name amen thank you for signing in and we look forward to being with you again in the near future. Goodbye for now, and I hope you have a really wonderful Christmas, in spite of many of the things that will be denied this Christmas. Cheerio.